You are listening to highlights from One Planet Podcast's interview with Craig Kaufman, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Oregon and a member of the United Nations Knowledge Network on Harmony with Nature. He's also the author of numerous works in the field of environmental politics, ecological law, and sustainable development. I want to just remind everyone again that the term rights of nature tends to be applied to two different things. One is this underlying sort of legal philosophy that is actually broader than just rights of nature that's probably better understood as ecological jurisprudence that may or may not be expressed in terms of rights. But because rights of nature is gaining a lot of attention, that term tends to be applied to represent this broader underlying philosophy. And then, of course, the other way it's used is to refer to the legal provisions that explicitly recognize rights for ecosystems. And so because the nature of the underlying legal philosophy is such that rights of nature, it's difficult to draw, to scale up lessons because you really need to adapt it to the local ecosystem, right? It really needs to be um, localized and embedded. It's hard to to take a, a one-size-fits-all approach with this um, because each community that's embedded in their local ecosystem needs to figure out how to adapt and live within the boundaries and limits of the ecosystems in which they're embedded. However, so I just wanted to put that out there. The other thing you referred to was this experimentation that's happening. And, and so because of that, you see a lot of experimentation with different kinds of models and it's being structured very differently in different places. And I think there are some lessons about what has worked better than others in, in, a, in a broad general sense, which I think is what you're getting at with your question. And so I think one of the important lessons that's emerging is if you start from the premise that these rights of nature legal provisions are not the end in and of themselves, they are simply a tool for trying to change the underlying paradigm of our legal systems to be more consistent with you know, the natural order of the universe to allow us to live within the boundaries of ecosystem functioning, then it's important that these legal provisions you know, explicitly embed these underlying principles into the law, right? That's the idea. And rights of nature laws can do that to the extent that they are bringing in these underlying principles of ecological jurisprudence. And that tends to happen better when you explicitly recognize unique rights for ecosystems, that you don't just treat them as if they were sort of humans, (laughs) but rather you recognize that ecosystems have unique rights that are different from humans, like the need to maintain their, their functioning of their cycles, to evolve naturally, to be restored and so forth, right? That, and then when you combine that with other kinds of language that emphasizes this interconnectedness of humans with other members of the larger earth community, that's gonna push you further along in that goal, right? Of underlying paradigm change, if you will. But for a variety of reasons, a number of countries are are codifying rights of nature in a different way that's called legal personhood. And there they are just essentially assigning the same rights that are given to humans and corporations and ships. And as was noted earlier on, you know, humans have a long history of recognizing things that are not humans, treating them legally as if they were people, right? Corporations literally are just collections of property, but we 
treat them legally as if they were people because it's useful for us to do that for a variety of reasons. And there's a number of other examples of how we do that. And so in one sense, you could say, well, if we do that for things like corporations, how much more important are ecosystems to us, given that they provide the conditions necessary for life? We should, at a minimum, give them the same rights as a corporation so that when there are conflicts, courts are better able to balance these competing rights. And there's, you know, I understand that argument and that makes sense at a certain level. Um, but the problem is if that is the only way, if you limit the rights of nature law to simply saying we recognize, you know, this ecosystem as a legal person with all the rights, duties and responsibilities and liabilities of any legal person, and that's it, you write in, there's no other element of ecological jurisprudence put into the law or the legal provision, you are basically just anthropomorphizing the ecosystem and inserting it into the anthropocentric legal system, which at a minimum does nothing to change the underlying paradigm and often has very perverse negative impacts that are counter to the goal of rights of nature activists and sort of ecological law activists generally. And I can give you, a, you know, you're from India and you're in India right now. India is a great example of this. You're probably familiar with the court ruling about the Ganga River in the Ganga and Yamuna, Yamuna rivers, which is an example of how judges who are sympathetic to this idea and are frustrated with the inability of existing environmental law to actually solve environmental problems are trying to think creatively about how you provide greater protection. And there are a number of judges in countries around the world, India being one of them, where judges have strategically interpreted existing laws to justify recognizing the rights of ecosystems, even when there is no law that explicitly recognizes rights of nature. Right? But to do that, they then have to base their decision on, on existing sort of anthropocentric legal doctrines. And so the way that the Indian judge did it was to note that India's government has for years been charged with trying to clean up the Ganga River and has failed to do so adequately. And so made the legal comparison of, made an analogy saying that this is sort of like a child who is neglected by their parents, right? And that when it, you know, in situations where childs are neglected or abused by their parents, the state can essentially take custody of the child because they are helpless, so to speak, and then appoint guardians to, to serve on their behalf. And so it's, it's more complicated than this, but uh, I just want to use this example to illustrate how the perverse incentives can come about. So the, the judge used other, interpreted other existing legal provisions to justify recognizing the Ganga and Yamuna rivers as legal persons, exactly the same as if it was a corporation or something like that. And then used this analogy of, you know, a neglected child to justify appointing guardians that would defend the interests of the rivers. And they were court appointed guardians, just like you would do if you had an autistic person or a child, someone who is incapable of 
speaking on their own behalf in a court. In locos parentes is the legal doctrine for this. Like in place of a parent, a court will appoint a guardian for people who are incapable of defending themselves. And so then there was a, a number of state officials were appointed from this province, including the district attorney who was supposed to be the legal guardian. And of course, they immediately, the guardians immediately became concerned because the way when you when you have in local parentis in this legal doctrine, guardians not only speak on behalf of their charges, but they're also liable <laughs> for anything that the charge does. They're they're responsible as well. And so they guardian the appointed guardians immediately objected, saying, "Wait, wait, wait a minute! Are you telling me that the next time that the Gunga River?" floods and kills people, which happens every year, pretty much, that those people can sue me because I am now liable for whatever the Gunga River does? No, that's crazy, right? And so they appealed to the Supreme Court. And I think it's important to emphasize that in their appeal, they said, look, we're not saying that we don't think the Gunga Yamuna rivers should have rights. <laughs> you know, or is deserving of rights, but this guardianship arrangement is just unworkable and it's creating, and I guess the larger point I wanna make is this, because the idea of rights of nature was expressed without the underlying ecological jurisprudence principles, it was highly problematic for a number of reasons. First of all, it totally flipped on its head sort of the underlying conception of how humans should see their relationship with nature. To put it bluntly, if anyone's going to be seen as the parent in the relationship, it should be nature. Not So this idea that humans are parents that need to just treat nature like children and take care of it replicates sort of this false idea that humans are capable of, you know, knowing the complexity of natural ecosystems in a way that they can manipulate it and control them. I think it's clear at this point that we, we can't and we don't understand the complexity. And trying to bend or manipulate nature to our will is folly. It's producing the, the crises that we're facing right now. And again, the whole basis of the underlying philosophy is that instead we need to learn how to adapt. And then on top of that, then it also, you know, it creates perverse incentives for the ones that are supposed to be caretaking. You know? And so I think, and there are a number of, of, of reasons that it's, that it's problematic to do that. But the, the overall, the overarching lesson is that it's problematic to do that because you're essentially just anthropomorphizing nature and then inserting it into the anthropocentric legal system without resolving any of the underlying problems of that system. And so, so it matters a lot how you structure rights of nature. We hope you've enjoyed this program and listening to the highlights of this podcast. If you would like to get involved in One Planet Podcast or learn more about environmental projects, click on the subscribe button. Thank you for listening. 